Right, so now before I start uh, pretending that I know anything about the ORSA process, I'll introduce you to Klaas van Weyck de Vries from Sunland and Karin Lowe from Old Mutual, which makes me think that, um, you know, you, you, you might have thought that uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and now you're sticking together on this uh, ORSA process. So I'm not going to say anything else. I'm not sure who's going to talk first, but as I understand, they would like to have this to be uh, uh, an interactive process, so please raise your hand and stop them if you if you have any questions. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Um, I actually just landed from Cape Town two hours ago, so if I, if I look like I don't know where I am, I don't. But anyway, so, so what does Google say about the author? So first thing, when I don't know what, what a topic means and when I started to get involved in Solvency 2, I, I Googled the author and this is the first hit I got. The, the Orbit Reconstruction Simulation and Analysis. That is actually a software tool that's way cooler than Profit or Moses um, because it analyzes the, um, uh, the stuff in the orbit of the Earth, like satellites and meteorites, etc. Um, so that was the first hit I got. The second hit I got was, it's a place in Sweden somewhere. So that's Sweden. Uh, that's that's the red bit there, and that's where also in Sweden is. So, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, the, the third hit I got was, funny enough, not um, IOPA's uh, description of the ORSA, but the one, the, the, the one by the Association of British Insurers. So that's what I'll be talking to you about, is uh, the ORSA as defined by um, Solvency 2 or SAM. So, just to put it into a little bit of perspective first, the own risk insolvency assessment is part of pillar two um, of, of SAM and of solvency two. So it's got to do with the risk management, the system of governance. Although saying that, um, there, is, there is a very quant quantitative component to the ORSA um, that we'll see as we, as we go, go through the presentation. Okay, um, so I thought the best way of introducing the author was actually just to tell you a little bit about the, the principles and the building blocks underlying the author uh, as, as the author concept. Um, start off with that, and then talk a bit about how, how those building blocks translated into the um, own risk insolvency assessment requirements um, that, that you are likely to see in the new insurance, insurance law. And then talk a little bit about the next steps that the task group, the, the, um, the FSB task group, will, um, will, under, will undertake. Then two questions I usually get from um, most of the people I spoke, speak to on the ORSA is, what is the ORSA process? How do we go about implementing an ORSA process for our business? And the second question is, how long should the ORSA report be? I, don't, I really don't know how long the also report should be, but I will, I will tell you a little bit about what I think should go into also report. And then lastly, I'll end off with a few, um, few observations as, as to where, where European companies is with, with, with the also and, uh, in their Solvency 2 regime. As I said, the also is part of Pillar 2, um, and the also is defined as the entirety of processes and procedures to identify, assess, monitor, manage, and report risk and determine the own funds necessary to ensure that the over, overall solvency needs are met at all times and are sufficient to meet the business strategy. That's a mouthful. It's quite a big de definition. 
But I think if we unpack it, there are basically three key components to this definition. It's risk, it's capital management, and it's the business, the management of the business. So first of all, let me, let me start off by, and Alex and I talked about this um, briefly before the session, um, by iterating that the OSA is not a report. The output of the OSA results in a, in a OSA report, um, but the own risk insolvency assessment is an assessment. It's not a report as such. It's an it's a assessment that pulls together the risk management processes, such as risk appetite, setting, monitoring of risk limits, uh, the capital management processes, um, such as the monitoring of return on capital, capital allocation decisions, and the business processes. Okay. Now, that is a mouthful, and perhaps it would be helpful if I just talk a little bit about the building blocks of the OSA, the building blocks being value, risk, and capital, um, and then describe the relationship between, between those, um, those three building blocks. First of all, value. Insurance companies, um, any, any company for that matter, will look to increase value to its stakeholders, stakeholders being the, the public, uh, shareholders, um, the, the employees, um, policyholders, etc., um, by optimizing return on capital. That needs to be done within a certain set of risk parameters to ensure that the company don't expose itself to unnecessary risk, and companies would be looking to optimize risk taking, again, to increase, increase value. So that describes those two legs of the triangle. The relationship between capital and risk is quite a simple one in that um, insurers are taking risk on the one side, market risk, credit risk, underwriting risk, whatnot, and they need to hold enough capital to, to, to make good when those risks materialize, so to ensure solvency. And that describes that relationship there at the bottom. Okay, so it's really against this backdrop that um, we in the task group uh, created or come up, came up with the, um, the also requirements. Two key questions that we also need to answer. Actually, three. Yes, three. The first question is, can we afford our business plan? So as a company, um, do, we, do, do we hold enough capital um, to mitigate against the risks? Bearing in mind, not all, risk, uh, not all risks can be mitigated through holding capital. Um, over our business planning period, um, so that's the first question. Can we afford our business plan? Um, the, the second and third questions are, are we exposed to the right risks? So um, uh, has the board decided, actually, uh, was there a conversation at board level around what risks do we need, uh, do we want to be exposed to? And are we exposed to the right levels um, of those risks? So, so then it's quite important that the senior management and the board um, takes ownership of this process. And you'll see when I talk about the, the proposed regula uh, regulatory requirements of the OSA that um, that is actually one of the first, the, the first concepts. So in performing the OSA, management should really, really take responsibility for, um, for considering the triangle, um, value, capital, and risk in the context of the business strategy. Okay. So I think that's, that's the OSA in terms of the conceptual thinking behind it. 
So how, how do these building blocks now manifest in proposals for primary and um, subordinated legislation? So what I've done is I've just summarized the, the, the proposed requirements um, in four categories, being governance, strategic nature of the ORSA, valuation basis, and compliance. Um, I'm not sure, Alex, are these, are these slide decks usually available afterwards? Okay. Um, so I've, I've, also, I've also attached as appendices um, the, the more detailed requirements. So the, the specific requirements of position paper 34, which is the, um, the, the, the position paper issued by the ORSA and use this task group um, on the ORSA. Okay, so governance. Um, please, if you have any questions, just stop me and raise your hand. We do have a roving mic. Um, so regarding governance, um, the ultimate responsibility and accountability of the unrisk insolvency assessment lies with the board. What do, what do they need to do? They need to approve the ORSA um, and they need to challenge the solvency capital requirement, the ACR, um, in, in, in light of the, the, the ORSA output. Um, they also need to be evidenced appropriately. There are documentation requirements. The documentation requirements will probably not make it into um, primary or secondary legislation. Um, these will most likely be included in other guidance. Those documentation requirements are, um, that's not my phone interfering. Um, documentation requirements are, you need an ORSA policy. Um, needs to be a record of the ORSA process. Um, internal management information dealing with risk and capital or, or the internal ORSA report. Um, and then the ultimate output is the ORSA report to, to the regulator. Um, to keep the accountants and the auditors in, uh, in, in work, uh, there's a requirement for independent assessment. No, that's not really why, but um, there's a requirement for independent assessment on the ORSA report, um, focused on ultimately compliance with the ORSA policy and compliance with the, um, with, with, with the Act. Um, bearing in mind, uh, this is an independent review, not necessarily an external, um, external review. So to the extent that, um, that internal audit or risk management do have um, knowledge and skills to, to evaluate the ORSA um, process, then companies can do it internally. It does, does not necessarily have to go external. Okay, um, then in terms of the uh, strategic nature of the ORSA, um, the ORSA is a forward-looking tool. Uh, it's a forward-looking assessment of risk and capital. Uh, I don't know who was at the FSB um, the SAM update. Yeah, for those who were there, um, the, uh, the, the slide that Ian put up, where he put SCR in the middle. So um, uh, Ian had a, had a very cool slide up where, where, where he explained the calculation of, um, of the ORSA capital, um, starting with the SCR in the middle, the solvency uh, solvency capital requirement, the regulatory capital requirement, um, building that out for um, risks that companies um, face or companies think they face that are not included in the calibration of the SCR um, and ultimately building it out again to, um, to allow for a buffer um, which is in effect the company's risk appetite. And then he, he described that as the ORSA capital today, and then he had three of those on, say, T0, T0, T1, T2, T3, so projecting it forward. So it needs to be a forward projection um, over the business planning 
horizon. Okay, I also need to include stress and scenario testing. Um, so I'm, I'm not an actuary, so I'm not going to pretend that I know what I'm talking about when I say the word stress and scenario testing. Um, so I'm not going to talk about it anymore. There, there needs to be a feedback loop between the ORSA, the outcome of the ORSA, and the business planning processes. Um, as you'll see later, there's a, there's a requirement to embed. Well, actually, not later. It's on the slide. There's a requirement to embed um, risk and capital management in the business. Now, if that's embedded, then there needs to be a feedback loop from the ORSA output back into your business planning processes. Um, and lastly, there also needs to be a, an assessment of all, all material risk, current and in the future. Okay, uh, then regarding the evaluation basis, um, there also is a quantitative assessment of, um, of required capital. Um, the evaluation basis does need to be complex. Um, uh, for example, at Sunlum, we are not using internal model. Um, we, we're using the standard formula. Um, so where a camp company is, is using the standard formula, it can actually follow the approach that I described earlier, um, starting with the SCR, um, bearing in mind that the SCR calculation is already a risk-based quantification of capital, one in 200 here. Whatever valuation basis the companies use, it needs to keep the auditors happy. So it needs to ensure that the, that the um, system of financial reporting hangs together and it must be able to reconcile the one valuation basis to the other. So be able to reconcile from IFRS to, to regulatory SAM basis to the economic basis. Okay, um, then, then lastly there are some specific compliance requirements, bearing in mind that the requirement um, from a pillar one side to comply with the SER and be solvent is a continuous requirement, it's not a point in time requirement. Um, the, and the, the requirements that relate to the technical provisions is also continuous requirements, it's not a point in time requirement. They also need to demonstrate how a company is um, solvent on a continuous basis. Now this does not necessarily mean that companies have to have real-time capital calculation capabilities in place. Um, it is however one of those areas that, and I hate to, I hate to say the word because I don't, um, I, I think the, you know, the SAM structure is still, still um, figuring out what it means, but it's one of those areas where we need to apply proportionality to say that if you're a smaller company with a, with a less compli complex and risky book, um, it's okay to calculate your capital once a quarter or once, uh, once um, uh, twice a year. Don't necessarily have to have um, monthly or more frequent calculation capabilities in place. Um, the also needs to be performed on a going concern basis. Now that means if you are projecting your business to be a going concern in the future, uh, you need to do your also on a similar basis. Um, and I guess if you're, not, if you're not projecting to be a going concern, then you'll be having very intimate discussions with the regulator, and the regulator will tell you exactly how to do your also. The, the last requirement is, is, is one about reporting. Um, I'll, I'll, speak about, I'll speak about the also report a little bit later. Um, but there, are, there, there, there is a solo, uh, um, a solo uh, reporting requirement, which basically means that if you hold a life license and is a legal entity, you need to, you need to do uh, an ORSA. There's also a requirement for, um, for groups, insurance groups, to perform ORSAs. Um, now, the task group did propose a, um, a, um, a waiver in, in this area, in the sense that 
Um, if your solo company is part of a group and the group also include the detailed capital and risk assessment of the solo company, then you can, can ask, ask the FSB for a waiver not to, not to submit the solo also, but only submit the group, the group also. Okay, that, that was a very quick overview of the requirements that you are likely to see in, um, in the primary and secondary legislation. Maybe just to draw your attention to what's out there in terms of primary and secondary legislation at the moment. Um, position paper 34 is the position paper on the ORSA. Um, that has been approved as a final position paper by STIACO and is out on the FSB website for consultation. Um, so please have a look at it. Please comment back to my task group. Um, we, we, we do need those comments. Um, and then draft two, I think, yes, yeah, draft two of the proposed, um, uh, the, no, the, the new insurance bill is out, um, and the also is in Article 27. Okay, so what else is my task group going to do over the next couple of, of, of months? Um, earlier, earlier the year, IOPA issued the consultation paper, which is consultation paper 008, um, which is quite a detailed consultation paper on the also. Um, it, it is not part of the le uh, um, legislation, so it's not level one or level two text, it's level three guidance, um, so it will be issued to um, member, member state, uh, states as guidance. Now, we're using that to, um, to, to build our further guidance that we will issue to the insurance industry from, uh, from a task group's point of view. So we're looking at about 22 principles, um, including more detail on proportionality, documentation, um, the, the forward-looking nature of the author, etc., etc. Okay, so I guess I've now talked about the the the, the regulatory side of the author, and perhaps before I take my regulatory hat off and put my business hat on, are there any questions, comments at this stage? Yes. I'm just considering the, the practical challenges of supervising the ORSA as a process rather than just the supervisor reading the report. Um, how will that happen? I mean, or, or do you, don't you foresee any challenges there? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm not working for the FSB, um, but I can, I, I, I can give you some of my experiences in Europe uh, around what the FSA is doing. Um, so the the, from the companies that I did speak to in Europe, the FSA is actually um, diving down into the next level of detail. So they are looking at um, companies' processes. Um, they are getting getting internal audit in companies to to review those processes. Um, or if if the companies don't they don't have necessarily skills in internal audit, they they, they do actually um, they did indicate that they will you know ask for third parties to. To, to look at it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, the, the FSA is really serious about this. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I'm not, yeah, as I said, I'm not working for the regulator, but I can't see that the, that the FSB um, will be any less serious about it. Uh, and I guess with Twin Peaks coming in, where, you know, you, 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 you'll have more of a kind of a, you know, a larger staff base or a, you know, the, the Reserve Bank will be um, 
will will provide a platform for you know um, much much bigger staff base for the FSP. Um, but yeah, I, I think staffing is probably an, an issue with with the regulators as it stands at the moment. Sure, you said you're going to ask controversial questions, not like this. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, then, um, what do insurance in, insurers need? Two questions that I get is, how do we go about developing the ORSA process? Think back about uh, think back to the definition of the ORSA. The ORSA is a process of risk management, capital management, and business planning. That's the first question that I get. Um, I'll speak about that in, in, in the next slide. Um, senior management and board's understanding of the interaction between value, risk, and capital. Now, I think, I think that's crucial. Um, but I also think that for larger companies, for companies who've been around for a while, companies who do have a matured risk management framework, um, this, is probably, this is probably not an issue. Um, smaller companies, younger companies, who do find the requirements of pillar two um, challenging um, they may require some training at, at board and senior manager level. Um, so yeah, let's move on to the ORSA, the ORSA process. Um, so for my sins, I'm the business architect for, for, um, for our SAM, um, SAM program at Sunlam. Um, and this is just kind of the, the, the way that I um, foresee us developing the ORSA process. Um, first of all, I don't think that once an ORSA process is developed and um, you walk away from your SAM project and you have a standalone ORSA process similar to an underwriting process or similar to a reporting process, um, I don't think your SAM program would have been successful um, because I don't think the ORSA process is a standalone process. I think it's, uh, it's a bit of each business process um, and those bits are risk identification, risk measurement, quantification of risk and capital, and the analysis of the risk impact on, on, on solvency. So how are we going about it? Um, we are actually taking our value chain functions, such as product development, business planning, capital management, and asking these four questions in each of those functions. So for my business planning function, how does my function identify risk? Um, are there workshops? Are there kind of wall sessions led by risk management or facilitated by risk management? Um, how's my risk measured? So what are the measurements used in my risk appetite statement? Um, for example, on volatility, future, future earnings volatility. Um, from a business planning point of view, um, you know, how, to what extent are you willing to, to deal with future earnings volatility? Um, quantification, how, how, are, how are risks and how is the capital quantified in our business planning process um, over three years? What, to what extent are um, year one a very accurate projection versus year two, three, and four maybe not so accurate? This is where the actuarial function do actually play quite a key role. Um, how's risk? Um, how's, the, how's the risk impact on solvency um, assessed in our business planning function? This is where our finance department play a key role. So finance put together risk MI, um, link, it to, link it to capital, and um, uh, doing the analysis and doing the um, 
uh, the comments on those MIPs and sending it out to the business. Um, <coughs> so that's kind of in a nutshell um, how, I, how I think companies should actually go about um, looking at embedding the ORSA in their business. Um, yes, there, there will be a standalone process for doing the ORSA report. Um, but again, when we started to unpack the ORSA um, report, we found that there's actually very little additional information that we can give our board that they don't get, um, that they don't get already on risk and capital management. Okay, so um, yes, uh, roving mic. All right, let's try this. Um, what is the difference, and sorry if I'm naive here, but what's the difference between measurement and quantification? Why the need to split the two? And is there not a feedback loop somewhere here where you have to make a decision or is that still coming? Okay, I'll, I, I don't understand your second question. I'll, um, what, what decision do you mean? So, so maybe a different, in our actual control cycle, we have the identification, the assessment, and then the management of risk. And, and I see your thinking, but I don't see the management side, and I see a duplicate measurement. Maybe just explain to us why. Okay, sure. Okay. So um, on the risk measurement side, it's um, basically how do I want to measure my risk? It's deciding on the metrics. So um, it's not necessarily the detailed quantification of it, it's what's the metric, deciding on the metric. Um, is that metric still relevant, given my risk profile? Um, am I still worried about earnings volatility, or am I now worried about something else? Um, so that's, that's the risk measurement, the quantification that's running the numbers through the model. Um, yes, absolutely right, you are, you are right, there is a decision, and, and that is where the analysis um, of where um, the analysis of the risk impact on solvency, you know, that's almost where I see, see that decision. Um, in terms of how the ORSA is used in the product, uh, for example, if you think about a business decision um, in a product development process, do I, do, I, do I go for this product, yes or no? Or how much capital will this product um, uh, uh, take up? Um, the, the ORSA is simply informing, informing that process. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't put, put a specific separate decision on, on my model. Um, happy? Cool. Any more questions? Um, yeah, let me just finish up on this slide by saying that the um, outcome of the ORSA process um, is a comprehensive and forward-looking assessment of the risk profile, um, together with plans to maintain solvency-based um, on, on various scenarios. Okay, documentation. Um, Alex asked me why I left EY. I used to be an auditor there. And <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is a, reali a, re a reality of it. Um, Sam is ask actually asking for more doc uh, documentation. Um, there's, there's a saying in the industry, if it's not documented, it's not done. Um, yeah, so I get the question, what, what should be in the ORSA report? Um, so first of all, and um, I've said this in front of the, the FSB, and they didn't, they didn't say anything back to me, so I, I, I hope we're going for this. There's no, there's no plans to, uh, to, to prescribe a standard, standard ORSA report template. Um, so companies will be ex expected to, to do the ORSA report on their own templates, um, and it needs to be aligned with how the business is managed. Um, what should go in there? Um, 
think there's obviously going to be a quantitative and a qualitative side to the OSA. The, on the quantitative side, um, solvency as at the reporting date, uh, regulatory solvency and economic solvency, if you're using a different reporting basis. Um, Forward-looking view of solvency, so those, those two, um, those two um, numbers, the regulatory solvency, the economic solvency projected over the business planning period. Um, and the link between risk and capital, which can usually be found in your risk appetite statement, your risk which, which filters down to risk tolerances, the, the, the actual measurement of those tolerances. Um, and then stress and scenario testing. So um, you think back about the business planning process. Um, uh, uh, companies usually don't do business planning just on a base case, base case scenario. There's usually some alternative scenarios. Um, so there's a, there's a requirement for the also to be performed, performed over specific business scenarios um, together with some stress testing to test the robustness and the resilience of, of solvency. Um, and there's a specific requirement to include reverse stress testing in, uh, in, in the stress testing part of the OSA. <coughs> okay, um, on the qualitative side, um, there's obviously going to be the, the static risk type of information that describe the, the system of risk management, the system of governance, um, such as policies, frameworks, um, uh, management actions, etc. Um, and then there's what I, call, what I like to call the fluid type of risk information, which, which are those qualitative bits and pieces that changes from year, uh, year in and year out. So risk appetite, change in risk, risk profile, um, how risks are managed, etc. <coughs> if I'm rambling through this, then um, it is because I've given you in the appendices, look like this, a very nice outline of um, something that you can use as a starting point for um, doing your also report. Don't take this as the, the start and end all. Um, I've taken this from a very good, good document issued by the Dutch Insurance Association, um, which, I'll, yeah, which I'll refer to again later. Okay. Um, I think initially this, the task group struggled a bit with when the OSA report should be, should be done. Because obviously it makes sense to run a set of numbers um, uh, at the year end to coincide with your, uh, with your regulatory numbers and IFRS numbers. Um, but then, you know, the debate came up, so if the OSA is a management tool, um, shouldn't we actually do our detailed OSA calculations at the time we do our, um, uh, our business planning? Um, that may be at a different date. So it's something for, for companies to, con to consider. Okay, um, so, so where does Europe stand with the OSA? And with, um, yeah, with OSA. Um, I think specifically the UK, bearing in mind that they, they did have an ICA regime, capital regime in place, which is, which is also a regime that stress, stresses the balance sheet to cal calculate the capital number. Um, for some years now, the, the gap for them to close is probably less than for South African companies that that, that didn't necessarily have that. Um, many insurance in, insurers in uh, in Europe is actually struggling with OSA. Um, many large insurers uh, has actually commented to me and said that the boards have pushed back on the OSA report and asked, so what's new? Um, so give us new information. 
So the also is the development of the also at those companies are iterative processes, um, and they 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 didn't all get it right the first time. Um, think about how 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 the European companies are thinking about the also as a process. It's pretty much the same as I described earlier. It's it's embedding risk and capital in each of their business processes. Um, on the also report, um, companies are going almost two ways here. They, they're using the index and they're creating also a report from the index. Um, some companies are doing that. Other companies are saying, well, we already give our boards good risk and capital management information. We're just going to put a wrapper around it. Um, so that they're developing also dashboards, three to five page dashboards that pull together the risk and capital management information um, of the business. Okay, and then I think it's fair to say that the um, Euro European companies have actually graduated also 101. Um, and then, so most of the companies have um, a baseline also process and a baseline also report in place. They're now looking at the more tricky aspects of the also. So building the links between risk and capital, um, deciding on stress and scenario testing approaches. Um, and then lastly, you know, they... Most companies that I talk to seem to have decided to actually calculate the also capital at year end, um, but they they um, they're also struggling with the question. You know, is that the best time to do that to, to do it? Okay, I've already mentioned everything on this slide. <laughs> okay, right. Um, this is then um, a list of the reference material that's out there at the moment. So, draft two of the primary legislation, Article 27. Position paper 34, um, IOPA CP 008, the screen's just doing funny things here. The, the also index um, I took from this last, this last bullet on the slide, the Dutch Association of um, Insurers, and the document is called Vision on Own Risk and Solvency Assessment, Good Practices. Um, and then there's a very good publication by Accenture, which is called Unlo Unlocking Business Value Through the OSA Implementation. Okay, and with that, that's the end of my talk. Um, I'm happy to take, to take any questions. Not on this, though. <laughs> on the OSA. Hi. Um, uh, just in terms of the timing of the OSA, you said some of the guys are struggling as to whether to do it year-end, um, business planning. Um, in in that slide that you sh showed with the uh, circle going around and yet business planning and capital management, you, you emphasized on how important the business planning process was. So I'm just trying to understand why would it not coincide with business planning? If that is the central you know, theme, almost when I read the CP uh, position paper 34 and the reliance on strategy and developing the risk strategy and the, the forward-looking concept, why would it not coincide there? Um, I guess the challenge is a practical one um, in that companies, especially, especially medium-sized, uh, medium smaller companies, not necessarily Sunlam or MMI, because you know, their, their capital calculation um, is, is more frequent. Um, but you know, typically, those companies, the smaller companies, only run um, the, the financial processes um, uh, at, at half year and at year end. Um, so you, you, 
you have kind of very detailed information to work with at those at those states. Um, so you are able to do a very uh, detailed calculation. You don't necessarily have that um, at a practical level at at, at other dates. Um, so yeah, so it's a practical issue. Yeah, I just had a question on how do you see the OSA process influencing board composition? We spoke earlier on about the OSA process being owned by the board. And from a fit and proper perspective, do you see the board composition changing because of the requirements that the OSA would have on the board to, to give confidence that they understand what's in the OSA process? And also, how do you see actuaries then playing a role within uh, the board as NEDs? Sure, yeah, that's, that's quite a good question. Um, well, the board need to have the appropriate um, skills and, and expertise. Um, so, so, so it's. I mean, it's not only. The board doesn't only need to understand the OSA. The board also need to understand the um, the regulatory capital. Um, they they also need to understand the financial statements, etc. So the board needs to un understand some really complex complex stuff. And in a life insurer, those 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 things are even more complicated. Um, so you know, I I do think personally. This is now sp speaking from a personal point of view and not the, not the Sunlam or FSB view. Um, I do think there there is going to be um, quite a strong role for for actuaries on the board to play. Um, you know, if if not in a statutory kind of position, um, uh, yeah. And and I'm I'm also not sure where where the discussions around the appointed actuary, the role of the statutory actuary, is going to end up in. So. Sorry, not a very good answer, um, but I'm probably not the right person to be a, <laughs> to answer the question. Question over there. Thanks, uh, George Marks. Uh, some of you may know me. Um, old professors don't die; they only lose their faculties. So, um, if I speak uh, somewhat incoherently, you know why. Um, I'd like to, to, to react to that question. Um, the hat that I'm wearing uh, here is, is really as a non-executive director, chairman of, of, of the audit committee of, of a, a medium-sized life insurer and also member of the audit committee of a fairly large short-term insurer. Um, and your question is absolutely relevant. Um, I'm the only actuary on those two boards um, in, in, in non-executive capacity and as such I feel pretty exposed. Um, my fellow board members uh, at each meeting where the ORSA process, SAM, and these kind of things uh, get dis discussed say so they haven't got the faintest clue what, what this is about. So, and then I look in my eyes and uh, I'm not much better. <laughs> uh, I, I have my CPD and that's about it. Um, so, so, so really your question is extremely, extremely le relevant. And what, what I'd like to ask is, is this whole ORSA process, yes, in, in theory, I, I, I vouch for it. Um, it is about calculations. It's about boxes being ticked. But are we doing the right sums, and have we got the right boxes uh, to be ticked? And I specifically ask that in, in, in relation to, to two things. Um, the one is that, at some stage, there was an analysis internationally of failures of, of life insurers in particular. And if I recollect it properly, bearing in mind loss of faculty, 
Um, none of those, or very few of those, was really related to inadequate capital in relation to, to risk being taken. Much of it had to do with rogue CEOs. <laughs> and I'd also like to ask, the FSB currently gets for each insurer on an annual basis these um, LT returns and the SD returns. And they, they get asked the question, what do you as a business see as the top five, six, or seven, I can't remember the number, risks? I'd like to ask, to what extent does this whole process address the risks identified by those companies? I suspect that, yeah, it, it, it does get assessed, but it does, does get considered, but not in that proportion. And I'd like to pose uh, uh, the thought that proportionality needs to be considered in relation to those questions that are answered, the data is there, uh, by, by the regulators and, and, and this whole process. Last re uh, remark from my side. Um, yeah, the ORSA process is hugely about processes uh, and management action in the whole business decision process. The flaw that I recognize is still inadequate, inadequate um, evaluation assessment of the people and the quality of the people and the role of the people. Uh, in one of our board meetings very recently, there was a major risk failure in, 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 in IT systems. And one of my fellow, fellow uh, directors asked, to what extent, having heard the, ex the, the explanations by management, to what extent was this a people problem and, and to what extent was it the system problem? And the answer was, it was more a people problem than a system problem. Thank you. Thank you. Those were some very, very relevant thoughts and, and questions. And, <laughs> and um, actually, I, I just want to make a comment on um, your comment on business failures. And you're absolutely right. It's, to do, it's not to do with um, uh, holding enough capital. It's to do with governance failures, failure of controls, um, a rogue CEO, a rogue trader, um, for example. Um, so. You know, I, I, I think, again, they also need to be seen in, together with all the other pillar two requirements, which are governance requirements, control requirements, etc. So thank you very much for those thoughts. Any more? Thanks, everybody. Hi, everyone. My name is Karen Lowe. Uh, there are a couple of familiar faces in the crowd. Um, for those of you who know me, I'm very passionate about ORSA, but I've been limited to this topic about <laughs> trying to explain to you what the benefits are of us going the internal model route, specifically for embedding ORSA, and maybe what some of the additional challenges are um, because we did that. So I just want to spend a few minutes on giving a little bit of background, just so that you know what the key questions were for us on a pillar one and a pillar two um, basis to position it to see what what aspects we were grappling with and then I'll move on to the benefits and the challenges so on a pillar one basis view um, we had to ask ourselves why are we going the internal model route and I think those points there are fairly obvious but they're, they're quite crucial so we knew that the standard formula is not going to reflect our risk profile and for us using economic capital in the business was very important that it did that obviously um, we're also quite a complex group, so in order to aggregate all these risks together, we wanted to go uh, for a single group model um, and made sense to combine that with the internal model application. 
We already had an existing economic capital calculation embedded in the group, um, so this would not have been a new concept for management. They already had it as part of uh, the talk at the top, as part of demonstrating um, when, you, when you did, say, an M&A or, or um, other business activities and knew what impact that would have on their performance management. So it was just a new way of calculating that. A complex way, but a new way. And uh, then we had also a relatively well-developed ERM system already there. So we were performing regular risk and control self-assessments, uh, identifying key risk drivers, recording internal uh, risk events, etc. I think uh, the problem was that the last two bullets there weren't interacting well. Um, so although we had most of the capital and most of the risk, this, the triangle, the interaction wasn't happening. And so when we came to our pillar two question, um, the question was really, what additional value is this also thing going to add? Um, and so when we were developing our also framework, that was the focus of it. So focusing on um, what value does risk-based decision-making give to your stakeholders? Okay, so we focused on the link between risk strategy and business strategy um, on more granular, more accurate projections of uh, the solvency position over the business plan, trying to look at emerging risks that happen over the business plan given certain key risk uh, decisions. And then, um, and then really using the also as a communication tool, a technique to demonstrate this risk-based decision-making, and perhaps using it as a mechanism for collecting evidence. So this is what we, why we tell people they need to demonstrate what they're doing. Okay, so that's the background to it. In terms of benefits, there were two sides to the coin. It was really nice for us to have the regulatory push, um, and I'll, I'll highlight some of the elements for you, why the internal model regula uh, regulations specific to them were helpful in, in, in developing and embedding the also. But there was also this management pool, so the guys, <laughs> they, they know that they need to manage ma ma minimize the capital number, and they wanted to understand what, how do you calculate it, what affects it, um, as part of the internal model training and education, there was greater participation because of this. Um, but also they needed to understand how to apply it as a risk management tool. And I'll just pause there and say we, we're not there yet. We, you know, in all aspects, we, do, we don't really fully understand yet. Um, and then a slightly different angle that we weren't expecting was uh, from the board's perspective. They were getting all these numbers, all this methodology, all the stats and the, the, the everything that they needed to understand. Um, and they were saying, wait, just take a step back and tell us, from a scenario perspective, the impact on our business. And that's exactly what the author is also asking us to do. So in a way, this influx of internal model documentation, etc., helped us to also take a step back and further embed the, the author processes. Okay, so I just want to spend a little bit more time on the regulatory side. I guess um, for, you, for the guys on standard formula, these might be helpful places to start looking if you want to improve your framework or if you want to help explain to the guys what they need to do. Um, and as part of the, sev the internal model application, you have to pass seven tests so to prove that your model is um, adequate and appropriate. Those are the, the tests that you need to pass. And of the seven, um, the use test and the validation standards are the most relevant, well, we found for, for the, developing the author process. So the use test, um, the regulatory 
uh, impetus behind it is um, so that you can demonstrate to the regulator that this model that you're using to calculate regulatory capital is the same model that you're using to make business decisions. That's the reason for the use test. It goes a little bit further if you use it from a from a also perspective um, because it can be a really powerful tool to get the guys thinking about how they actually use the number, the capital number, both for risk management and for communicating exposures about risk. And on the validation standards side, I mean the purpose of it is to make sure that the model is, you know, good and it keeps being improved. But from an also perspective, it there's some key tools and I'll go through them now that really help you in, in developing the also concepts. I won't spend too much time on this. I just wanted to um, give a little bit of an idea. We, we went a little bit further, so we could have said, okay, full stop. Um, we, uh, we, we can prove that it's the same model. We use our 99.93 uh, for EC and our 99.5, and we don't need to do anything further. But what we actually did was we developed a, quite a comprehensive framework. We took every every possible business process where you could use economic capital to make a decision, those are listed there. We split those even further um, and then we assigned business owners to those processes and tasked them <laughs> with explaining how they're using this model in decision making. And we had a whole four categoried um, process of, of ranking yourself, so you might be on blue um, or you might be on red and there were specific requirements on how to progress from one to the other within your specific area. So I mention it because I think it was very helpful in getting the line one guys, the guys are actually in the business making the decisions, to think about capital um, and, and how they could apply it. Right, back to the validation standards. So these are the minimum requirements uh, according to the IOPA level two um, regs. And um, again, I'll just highlight a couple that are particularly useful for you when you're looking at also development. Backtesting. So uh, you have to go back and test this model against the actual outcomes. Um, but it also gives you impetus for also feedback loops. So <laughs> the, that diagram is really, really easy to draw, but to get it actually happening is very difficult. And my answer, I think, to the guy somewhere around there um, about actuaries on boards, actually it's the guys sitting in this room apart <laughs> from you, it's actually on the board. It needs to be much better at communicating what risk is, how we calculate the risk, how we allow for risk in our models, and we need to be better at understanding the business and, and what our models really mean. So that's my view as an actuary. I'm still in, in the upward slant towards board, <laughs> board, uh, a board seat. Uh, sensitivity testing, on the face of it, not very useful for also plausible but extreme threats, but it did start, it gave us a starting point for um, discussing factors to which the business is sensitive to. So it allows you to talk to the CEO for segment X, Y, and Z and say, this is what our model is telling us. Is this true? Is this where your business is sensitive? It was useful from a risk perspective. Stress and scenario testing, again, um, starting, gave a starting point for wider stress and scenario testing. You'll see later it was also negative. Um, reverse stress testing was crucial for also. Uh, so even though the output from the model was quite technical, it's millions of simulations and you sort of pick a scenario that you think could happen, 
it's useful as a starting point for the board then to go and say, okay, well now I'll build that out. Tell me uh, how does that affect my regulator and what the decisions are that they're going to make. Tell me what the impact is on my clients. So use that again as a starting point, but not the end all and the be all. And finally, profit and loss attribution. Um, I've put there helps focus on non-quantifiable risk. We haven't quite gotten there either yet, but the idea is that we where you've, you know that you've tested your model, you understand the inputs that you're giving and you're still getting a big loss in X, Y, Z. It focuses on other areas, of, um, for example, a, a loss due to reputational damage or uh, a broker channel that's, that's gone rogue. Um, so. Right. The other side of the coin, the management pool side. So I've pulled together a few examples for you. They're quite high level, but I think they're interesting to see uh, the types of ideas that the also process generated in the business. So you can see here, um, this example is about understanding the risk-return relationship. The size of the blob is about how big that piece of business is in, in the organization. And then uh, we've plotted um, a profit measure against a capital measure, very simple. And the, the diagonal line, if you're above it, it means the pricing in your product is sufficient to carry the capital costs. If you're below it, you haven't priced it correctly for whatever reason. Uh, maybe uh, Solvency 2 uh, capital is more onerous because of the guarantees that you have that you didn't have on your previous capital basis. So you needed to go and investigate those. Um, and then I guess the point that I'd like to make as part of my remit is that because our capital model, our internal model, was based off our profit and Moses models and it's the same mechanism for calculating the V and B, those were apples with apples. So, you know, there's, there's synergy there. So you can go and see, you can investigate the cash flows and you can see what impact that has on the, on the capital. And that's incredibly powerful. Second example was around reinsurance. Um, so trying to weigh up how much you seed versus pricing in the market, so reinsurance rate probably much lower than the one that you would internally be comfortable pricing on versus capital efficiency. And uh, the, the green bar is the profits that you would see to the reinsurer and the, the um, blue bar is the capital that you would have saved by, by passing on the risk. And you can see for product X, it made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> we were giving away lots more capital than, than the um, profits than the capital that we were saving. Product Y, neither here nor there. Product Z, maybe you need to think a bit harder about it. And this is only one side of the coin, right? But that's the whole point, is that you bring in risk and capital decision-making into business decisions. You might decide you still want to go with the reinsurer for other reasons. Um, but it's to, to give a more full picture. And the last example that I want to give, I know the graph's a little bit small, etc., but um, this one was about understanding your risk profile and how it's going to move over time. Um, so without our internal model development, we would never have gotten here for this product. A lot of hard work went into simulations and making this picture work. What it shows you is uh, the risk profile for a, um, a funeral product. And what, what you would expect happens, happens in the beginning, in that your um, equity risk, the red bar is equity risk, is virtually non-existent in the beginning years. In fact, negative, okay? negative sterlings. And, uh, and that if, you, if you'd had 
you know, if you'd made a stab at it and said that was your risk profile for now, you would have left it at that. This particular, particular product had certain paid-up guarantees, which meant that over the period of time, equity risk actually becomes really important. And when you have a risk strategy that says, I'm trying to minimize equity risk or I have a limit, and you have a product that you've sold 10 years ago that's going to exceed that, this is useful information to know and understand how to manage it. Right, so the challenges. Some of you might have been at the actuarial convention in Cape Town. A colleague of mine drew this picture, and it is so very true for our business, in that Pillar 1 just completely dominated the last two years of SAM development, and it left very little time and resource for Pillars 2 and 3. Um, in particular, uh, the internal model development itself, um, the production of the documentation, the multitude of policies that we've had to develop around internal model governance, validation, documentation standards, etc. Management time and focus. I mean, the board have reviewed all of those policies. They have to. It's part of the, um, the requirements, the, what the expectation. They've reviewed all the IMAP documentation. And there's just no more appetite. <laughs> so after pillar one, you get to pillar two, the real crux of what the board should be looking at in management, and there's no appetite. Significant governance burdens, and in addition to all this internal model governance, there are also requirements. So I've just listed a couple of points, but we needed some, some forum. Our CRO owns this, this report, this process, but we need a governance forum to decide on work plans and scenarios and you know, evaluate the information that comes through. And you could argue it happens at a board level, but actually our, our organization doesn't work like that. It goes through board risk and then it goes through board. Um, so there's a lot more work to be done in addition. Then back to stress and scenario testing, um, eventually it got to the point where we were so consumed by what the model was telling us that actually we weren't taking a step back and looking at, at the wider impact of st uh, scenarios. And then uh, the group is large, and if you weren't uh, an internal model entity in Old Mutual, uh, you know, there was no focus on your capital calculation or risk process development, etc. And uh, really just because we wanted to standardize these principles across the group, so we borrowed from the internal model, we borrowed from the wider Solvency II principles, and then we rolled it out over all the entities, even though they weren't um, potentially big enough to handle it. And death by governance is probably the way they feel. <laughs> okay, so the, in the impact of the internal model, and I'll also, just two more slides. Um, is that we were forced to take a phased, a phased approach to embedding the author. Um, and I won't read all of it, but um, just taking capital as example, we, we, just, we lost the battle. You have to focus on, it, on the capital. You have to focus on the numbers coming out. Then in phase two, you can think about meaningful risk appetite limits and tolerance limits, really getting down to a gradu grad more granular level, splitting it down to segments, looking at products, etc. And only in phase three are you going to come to meaningful capital allocation, which are really giving you return on capital that, that's um, demonstrating a risk-based decision-making and an integrated business plan. Um, and you can do the same for, for risk and value. And then I think the use framework is probably the one um, that had the most impact on our development of our framework and our approach. I mean, we had already in place 
um, the risk strategy process, the risk appetite, risk identification processes. We had a quantification process and we were changing the methodology. This monitoring and mitigation had to expand. It was uh, much more focused or centric on, um, on ops risk management and we needed to find a way of communicating other risks. And crucially for us is getting this stress and scenario testing its own piece of the pie so that you have both elements coming together, the model, number crunching, and the wider guys, the guys who sit and think what's the impact on the business. And finally, the feed into business strategy. And the way this eventually materialized was in um, very detailed business planning uh, packs that were submitted by all the business plans, uh, all the business units that have identified risks already in the plan that they've tried to uh, project capital according to their uh, initiatives for the year. And then around the sides, everything that you've learned during the year about embedding in your business. So wherever you've made a product development decision or a pricing decision, or you've made a treasury type decision on an acquisition, that you record that, that you evidence that for the also process. And that's why for us it's, it's no longer become really an issue of timing of the also report because this, this happens all the time and the board will see it. If it's material, the board will see it. And what you're trying to do is once a year in a report demonstrate everywhere where you've made a risk-based decision. Um, and maybe a final point is we, we place a strong emphasis on this feedback loop thing because without it, it doesn't really matter. You know, so we need to get the risk guys, the CROs in all the business units talking to the actuaries saying, we see this you know, as part of that channel. How does it affect your assumptions? And we're nowhere near there, um, but that's the idea is to start fostering that um, cross-functional talking between people about risk. I think that brings to a close our sessional meeting. Any questions for me? Right, Joe, well, your hand clapping preempted. Just wanted to say thank you for class and, and Corin and class. I think you got the lion's share of the questions there. Um, <laughs> um, and I think you've, you've, you've got something to report back through the also task group and to the FSB that uh, clearly if you look at the number of people in the room that the industry is taking the also seriously. Uh, and for those of you who thought you're just coming for some CPD points, maybe you've realized now that you've perhaps learned something that's not you know, more than just CPD, it's of real value. So once again, thank you very much for, for your contribution. Um, uh, speaking of taking things seriously, uh, Old Mutual also takes uh, our tendency seriously, so I believe there's some uh, really uh, nice snacks and drinks to have afterwards. And thank you for coming. Thank you.